0: No Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I am Ben Rothenberg. It is February 26th, 2020. And Maria Sharapova has just announced her retirement from the sport of tennis after at age 32 after winning a Grand Slam. Wimbledon when she was just 17, ending a life that has pretty much half been in professional tennis, or maybe even more, technically. I'm joined on this show to discuss the news and Maria's career and legacy and impact and controversies and whatnot else by dear friend of the show, Tumani carryall of The Guardian. Hi, Tumani. How are you? Hello. Thanks for having me. It's been a long while since I appeared on the show, so I'm back. We had requests from, like, Patreon backers, I think, who were like, you need to get two money back. And I was like, I think that's doable. And I was thinking we would do it sometime when we saw each other later, and then this Sharapova news broke, and I was like, how about we do it right now? <laughs> and sure. you were game, so I appreciate you being up for talking about Maria. Uh, I'll start with you. I guess, what was your reaction when you saw the news today? Uh, or I guess, I don't know where you first saw it, if it was through the published story that she did, essay she did, or, or where that Sharapova was retiring. What, were your, what was your reaction? My, my first
1: I first saw it from Head head tennis's tweet, you know.
0: Oh, her racket sponsor, yeah.
1: Yes, and, uh, you know, I mean, I wasn't surprised. I guess I'm, I wasn't anticipating it right now, but, you know, I, I always knew that, you know, it, it seemed to be coming, and particularly after the Australian Open, after her loss to Donna Vekic, it seemed the writing was on the wall for, I mean, for us, but also for her for the first time. You know, there wasn't the kind of, the resolve and the, you know, I'm, I'm battling through this. She seemed well well aware that, you know, this wasn't working. Yeah.
0: And sort of accepting her tennis mortality almost for maybe for the first time. Absolutely, yeah. Because I remember asking her about, because um, after that loss to Vekic, her ranking was going to slip to like, because she made fourth round the year before, i open. Uh, her ranking was going to slip to, I think, 300 something. And I remember asking her like, you know would you go down and play ITS or something and she just seemed fairly not interested in that idea at all yeah it's one of those things that like my main reaction to this retirement which I can't remember for any other athlete is just kind of being relieved like yeah. you know it was so clear to so many people who were close to the sport close to Maria that this was not working and what she and her like and I think she said this in maybe an interview with Chris Clary that came out that What had been a big strength of hers, her perseverance, her refusal to quit and, you know, determination kind of became not a dissimilar way to Andy Murray, maybe in some ways, but kind of became a weakness near the end where she just kept pushing and pushing and pushing and refusing to accept what was obvious to everyone else. And when you've had, you know, an odds defying story like Maria had with her whole journey from Siberia that's been well documented through to the sport, like... You understand why? What made her so great was also what made it tough to tough to walk away. And with Maria, I, I would people would ask me about her, and I would the sort of phrase I started using because the conversation happened a lot. Like, why is Sharapova still here? I kind of was. I kind of said she forgot to retire. Like she had. She that was the that was before what I landed on. Like she had in twenty twenty hindsight, there was a moment twenty seventeen fall where she had just beaten Halep at the U.S. Open which kind of proved that she was back, and it was her big first big, big, big post-suspension uh, win. Yep. And then she goes on and she wins Tianjin, which is a tiny title, but still her first title since then, and she lost a trophy. In hindsight, she should have stopped right then, if she wanted to go out at all on top. Yep. But knowing her, obviously, she thinks, you know, I'm... I can still do more. And then she goes, the Australian Open the next year it gets clobbered by Kerber in the third round, like really badly. And it was kind of, and kind of never really got that same, that same uh, mojo back. I mean, she did, you know, had a good French Open that year. She made quarters. She was going to play Serena in the fourth round. And Serena pulled out of that match, which was a match people have been looking forward to. Cause Serena was coming back off maternity leave and the question marks around her. And Maria was having a really good couple weeks and people thought that could be a competitive match. Even though obviously we'll get more to Serena as it goes, as far as Sheriff Hope's legacy goes, but yeah, I I I just thought that as the results continued to disintegrate and her health continued getting worse, which had been getting bad even before the ban. Slowly, the early signs of her arm breaking down and her shoulder continued to be a problem, those were all there. So as it kept getting worse and worse, yeah, I I just I, it, she just she just wasn't competitively relevant anymore. It wasn't yep. like she was even like a dangerous floater by the end. And I just I just I was. I didn't think that, you know, I was sort of hoping that she would see the light, which sounds mean or sounds like you know harsh, but I, I think she finally did. And I'm 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 pretty relieved that she's that she's stopping.
1: Yeah, and you you mentioned 2017, and in hindsight, that would that was the moment, that was the one high point when she could have left. But I think a lot about when she came back from the band and how, how much people thought she was going to just return to the top, right? Yeah, and, you know, when she came back in the clay season. It, before we knew whether or not she would have gone a wild card, people thought she was going to go on and win the French Open at, at one point. It, when, when we think back before the ban, you know, her body was already disintegrating. There were already the signs that, that she was getting old, that, you know, you know the play, these players who are out there until their mid-30s, you know, that's still very difficult to do, particularly for someone who has been at the top of the game since she was 16. You know, that's a lot of tennis, a long time. And yeah, I just think bit by bit, is, it has been clear that you know there's there's a constant stream of setbacks and injuries and different parts of her body. And for me, kind of the the big moment I, I mentioned it today on Twitter was our Wimbledon last year when she lost in the first mm-hmm. round. And I mean, I, I've I've you know we've we've been in many press conferences of hers, you you more than me, and that she looked like she was, you know, she was close to tears if not crying, and it just you know she knew that you know she had just had shoulder surgery earlier this that year and you know there was another setback and when she got one part of her body fixed there was another setback so yeah it, it's been a long time coming and you know i think it's yeah it's time
0: yeah that that was when she retired that Wimbledon match, was when she retired down 5 511 the 3rd to yeah. Parmentier which was very out of character for her a to lose Department Parmentier, but B <laughs> to to go you know, retire and stop and I don't know what kind of and obviously Paul Lehman said plenty of thoughts on Maria since then, but it's interesting just to to see, yeah, just how uncharacteristic it all was and how sort of and again, and I'm not somebody who at all believes in the concept of players sticking around too long and quote unquote diminishing their legacy. I don't oh, yeah. think that's what I don't think that's what Maria was doing in this last year or two. But it was results that were completely not in keeping with what her legacy and stature is I and mean, they were kind of beneath her results honestly but that she wanted to, that she was kind of a, a glutton for punishment in some ways and kind of couldn't know what to stop like i said i think that is the sort of flip side of what made her so good for so long and the fact that she is 32 but had played and didn't play a super super full schedule but whenever she did play she was really all out all the time, first point to last point, in a, in a way that was different than, like, you know, we'll talk, again, we'll talk more about Serena later, but, like, <laughs> Serena, I think, has been much more aggressive when it comes to, like, energy management during her career yep. than Sharapova. Sharapova was really just, like, from the time she stepped on court for the first time, at 15, 16 years old on tour, you know, she was really pretty all out all the way, and didn't know, did, wouldn't ever allow herself to shift into any sort of lower gear um and yeah and so so that that burned her out and had sort of spectacular physical ramifications for her uh which started and seriously as soon as as early as 08 i guess when she was just 21 years old and had her first shoulder surgery um that and those sort of health problems continued to be a story with her all the way through even as she got you know her game back in order and started winning grand slams again and became a threat on clay and totally transformed herself that way like the serve was never what it was when she was a teenager if you watch the footage of like the 04 wimbledon final like her game is not really recognizable to what when she was that good at 17 she's playing a much more sort of whippy loose you know powerful snappy game that she played early later in her career so her ability yeah. to sort of to evolve and to survive her body breaking down and, and maintain as long as she did was, was pretty remarkable. And you could see by the end, just how much she was really grinding, grinding the gears.
1: Yeah. And, and and on that, I think the second part of her career after her shoulder surgery, it, it became more about that kind of, as you said, that kind of grind, you know, she, she couldn't, she didn't just blow her top rivals off the court. The matches became longer and tighter and more about the mental side and her application. You know, so yeah, and that that
0: takes a toll in the. End. Yeah, for sure. So, what let's just sort of do a little bit of retrospective. What was what was your earliest memory, Tamani, of of Sharapova, if you remember?
1: Um, I remember it was Wimbledon tw- two
0: thousand and three, yep, the year before she won Wimbledon,
1: and <laughs> she played Ashley Harker Road in the first round. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, I, I was actually recently I was actually just reading back the press conference transcripts and stuff mm-hmm. and it just made me want to vomit. <laughs> Why? Because of the way it was branded the Battle of the Babes. Bear in mind Maria uh, yeah. Sharpova was six, 16 years old, <laughs> you know, and I was looking at old press conference that I just got up again and she was asked after Sharpova won easily, how prepared are you to fill the corner clover gap to a 16-year-old, you know, and it's just, you know, from the very beginning, before she even won, it was about that, you know, about... The looks about people sexualizing this teenager, and you know that's that's how I first saw her. And obviously, w- with it came talk about the grunt. But from very young, she was this prodigy who, you know, who, who was already from the very moment you saw her was beating top players. She made the fourth round that year, beat Jelena Dokic who I was, you know, growing up I really liked. So <laughs> I was seething a little, um, <laughs> and and yeah, and that's kind of. Uh, that was my first view of her, and yeah. within a year, she well, a year later, she was a slam champion.
0: I think I think that's a good point to bring up, just how much she was really the next Kornikova in her early, early talk about her, because she was obviously the next great Russian, and she was, and Dementieva was around then. Two thousand three was the year before meskina broke through and became the first to win a, a Grand Slam at the French Open, just before Maria won Wimbledon, and then Kuznetsova won. US Open later that year, so it was kind of the Russian arrival. But yeah, Sharapova was the one early on who was the commodity, who was the, the prodigy, was the sex symbol, at, again, at 16, which is gross, and and was completely the star. Gross, yeah. Completely gross, yeah. And you even just, you know, looking back at Kornikova, obviously, I did all this stuff on Monique Vili, like that, the stuff that was happening, you know, 20 yep. odd years ago with talk, how they talked about teen girls would never happen these days, and it's such a massive departure from anything that gets said about Coco Golf or even you know Nisimova, or something like that. Yeah. So yeah. So that was that was definitely something she grew up in, and she seemed to definitely resent the share the Kornakova label because unfairly to Kornakova, Kornakova as a label meant also had a connotation of being a loser and being you know just all looks and no substance, even though Kornakova was a top ten player. And so. Cher shook that off and, and won Wimbledon. And I remember actually 2004 Wimbledon was one of those tournaments I first got really into as it happened, just because I was it was summer vacation. I was home and not working or anything. I think I was, I was 17 too. I'm the same age as Maria pretty much. And just watching pretty much every session of that tournament that was broadcast on TV, seeing her work round by round through Hantakova through Sugiyama was a great quarterfinal against Sugiyama at that tournament Uh, against Davenport in the semis and then against Serena. And being like really, really surprised when she beat Serena, I did not think she had any real shot in that match. But her beating Serena uh, was, was shocking and was sort of the first real tennis shock that I can register. Where like I knew both players pretty well and like had a very strong opinion of who would win. In a grand slam final, and it was a really, really seismic result. And it obviously, and Maria, I think, thinks of it as shaping her whole career. Because if you look at her, like her autobiography that came out in 2017, the book, I think, yeah, like the inside covers, like Maria Sherpova the tennis player in 2004, she'd be Serena Williams in Wimbledon. Like, it's still like for her, it's still like the first line of her, to be morbid again, her her tennis obituary. Uh, is that yeah. is still that result, and yeah, it really was. Really was a big one. And she she backed it up. You know, it wasn't a flash in the pan match. She became a, a steadily top player pretty linearly after that. I mean, she made a bunch of slam semis for a while before finally breaking through to her second at the 06 Open. Yeah. And, and she just became a, a fixture in the top 10 after that, even with the later you know shoulder issues that flared up. Yeah. skip ahead i guess to meldonium because obviously it's a big part of her her story too when she got when she tested positive in 2016 for meldonium which is just she tested positive at the 2016 australian open for a substance that had been that had been added to the banned list effective beginning of that month so beginning january 2016 so she had been she said she'd been taking it for 10 years which she did not have to say she could have said i started taking it six weeks ago but um she said she'd been taking it for ten years and that she and she tested positive pretty clearly on the first time she got tested after it was added to the list. She just didn't notice the status change. She wasn't trying to I, I firmly believe she did not think that she was she was not knowingly breaking a rule, that she just sort of walked into a wall that she wasn't looking for, the newly built wall in terms of the rule being changed. And that totally sidetracked her her story um, and really does define, I guess, the last five years of her career. And this is to be, this will be a conversation for a while, and you know, whenever her Hall of Fame vote comes up in five years or so, what, what do you think? How big a role should should Meldonian play in the conversation about Sharapova's career? To my, do you think?
1: It's it's a very difficult question because, I mean, on, on one hand, uh, as as someone who watches sports, it it wasn't that revelatory for me it's just just because, honestly, I, I kind of expect that athletes in all sports are towing the line and taking things it, it wasn't as surprising to me but you know knowing what we know about over, you know she's a great uh, competitor we knew she always was lasted to the end of matches she had great stamina I think that is something that people naturally look at Maldonium now and say you know that if that is part of why she was successful and you know i think when when you see the reaction to uh, to her now and when you speak about her i think a lot of people will hold that against her I, I'm, how much does that affect her i don't know i, I think uh, at the end of the day it's it's uh, it's about how, how people respond to her and she she's become a very divisive figure It's something like you know when you speak about her career it has to it has to be mentioned and you know, it's always going to be mentioned and yeah. there will always be question marks and, da- you know, doubts just because of it. That's the nature of an anti-doping rule violation. And
0: that's where we're at with her.
1: Well, what do you think?
0: I think she was divisive even before this. And I think this sort of just added gasoline to the to the fire and everything, you know, the, the conflict that emerged between her and Serena and even still. And ever since, especially after Meldonium, people who get most, and we can talk more about this when we get to Serena, I keep saying that. But, you know, the people who get most sort of animated about the Meldonium stuff are, at least in my mentions, seem to be Serena fans who are the most harsh about it. Which which I understand in the, from the background context of that these two were pitted against each other for a long time. And there was a lot of attention and, you know, writing about how Sharapova got more endorsements than Serena and was overall paid higher, even despite being... Uh, the inferior player for a lot of the time, especially in their head-to-head, uh, as it turned out once Serena flipped that rivalry on its head pretty well at a couple Australian Opens. But yeah, I, in terms of the legacy, I mean, I think pointed out that Cheripova won two of her slams before she started taking Maldonem, I believe. I think she said she started taking it like fall of 06, if I remember correctly. Yeah, something like that. So after, after she won the 06 US Open. And what I sort of give her credit for is in her you know i do believe she's being mostly honest in her at least official proceedings about the about the casting at least in saying that she'd been taking it for 10 years which then allowed her which then allowed us to sort of second guess 10 years worth of results when she could have made it a much shorter window and then but she i think was honest in terms of when she started saying she started taking it i don't think she was taking it earlier than that um and she was as we said a very very good player pre-meldonium Arguably better than post-Meldonium. Meldonium. But you're right. I mean, it does... As late in her career, her endurance became a big asset of hers And like, 2014 French Open is the one that stands out, which was her final Grand Slam title. Her last four matches, yeah. she she won back-to-back-to-back-to-back to back to back to back, tough three setters against Stoser, Muguruza, Bouchard, and Halep. And that was really, like a triumphing based on, like, physical strength and stamina and willpower, obviously. But there was a big physical element to that tournament. And, yeah, that's one where, you sure, if you want to look back and say maybe she was aided because of Meldonium, okay. But also, Meldonium was legal back then. And as you said, yeah. all we kind of expect all pro athletes to toe the line, was your phrase, which I like. And how you judge someone for using a substance that is, you know, to use a phrase, like, pre-illegal yeah, is it's tough to judge because as far as we know, every player is doing that and every player is using recovery methods and whatever else that it might someday be seen as a little bit yeah. over the edge or something. And, and it's just, t- it's tough to retroactively decide that. So I do think that, you know, and it's helpful also then that once Meldonian became illegal, Sharapova tested positive immediately. And so, yes, yeah, like yeah. her result. And I was talking about this on Twitter this week in the con or someone br- I was bringing up Cecil Karatecheva because they, gosh, they, gosh. Keep, men- <laughs> they keep mentioning her, in uh, in the context of with Coco Golf right of Golf being the youngest in the top fifty since Kirtancheva. Uh Kirtanchova who made the top fifty after making a friendship quarter in quarterfinal in 05, at which she tested positive, I believe, for Nangelone, which is a pretty heavy duty steroid. So that result should be wiped. And yes, but for Sharapova, the only result that I think really needs to be erased or can be erased is that 2016 Australian Open, which was not a significant. She lost in the quarters to Serena. It was not a significant. Run in the scope of her career, or not a memorable run, really. But that, but before, before or after that, especially, especially because, I, yeah, because it really did come to just Max, her agent, Max Eisenbud dropping the ball and not paying attention, and her having a pretty honestly amateurish setup around her, you know, health and her medicines and whatever that they didn't catch at this thing that she was taking regularly was, was shifting on t- from, you know allowed to band that they didn't see the warnings and whether those warnings were, we talked about this a lot on the show back then where those warnings were made, you know, evident enough or obvious enough, or if they should have more to warn her because Meldonian would have been in her sub, in in her her samples regularly in 20, late, late 2015 after WADA decided to to switch it. Like she played Fed Cup final in 2015 and they could have told her there like, Hey, by the way, this thing that's in your urine sample Will get you banned yeah. in two months or three months, so watch out they didn't yeah. no one no one really really did that to her, and if you think that's their responsibility or not different topic but yeah i I just think in terms of asterisking earlier results i I'm probably pretty i think I'm guessing I'm on the lighter end of the spectrum for that just because sure. you yeah you just don't know and even then there's still debate about what if anything Meldonium does as a performance enhancer it's not yeah. clear on that either.
1: The, that she revealed that she'd been taking it for ten years. That does kind of at least explain the why it was so amateurish and why they maybe became more yeah. kind of careless and weren't checking it and that. And I, I think also, you know, one, one of the things that has been used as kind of asterisk her career or her results since she's come back. You know, if yeah. she had come come back and triumphantly won a, a slam, you know, w- without Mordonium, you know, that would have clearly been the perfect. You know, result for her. You know, because it would have shown, you know, beyond doubt to to people who doubted. But you know, when you look at all her, a lot of it is down to her injuries, I think. And you know, the, the you know her her shoulder kind of falling apart again, her forearm. So I don't know. I I think I do take that with a pinch of salt. I think it's hard to difficult to come to that conclusion. You know.
0: I don't think she was winning any more Grand Slams anyway. It's sort of my yeah. take on that. I, I think yeah. that she was already on the downhill before the ban. Yeah, I think that after the ban, I've told this story before in the podcast, but the ban happened, this is my own personal connection to. while I was recording my Jeopardy! episode is when she made her ugly carpet press conference. Yeah. So it was a weird, weird day for me on a lot of levels. But I, I don't think that she, I think she was planning on retiring probably end of 2016. And that was sort of her stated goal, maybe 2017. But she had a finish line in sight earlier on and then hung on because she, and I, I don't think she's ever admitted this, but I, I have to believe it, that she wanted to prove that she could win without Meldonium. She wanted to make that statement clear, and in the end, she could not. And I, But I do think, like, we sort of, I think we agree, that that was less about the Meldonium and more just about her already being on the downhill of her career and the physical side of the downhill no. and, the, and the, the disintegration of her shoulder, you know, really accelerating a lot and... Yeah, and, and she still did have some decent results and, and, you know, things to be proud of in her career and was still a top 30 player for a while, at least, but I don't think she ever got back into the top 20. Yeah, I, I think that's what kept her going and that's something to prove and that she never proved it. You know, I don't see that as, for me, and people can disagree, I know people do disagree, but I don't see that at all. As, oh, they, they definitely do disagree. <laughs> oh, I know, I know people, and also, <laughs> the people who disagree, I think this gets into, we can just get to Serena now, in that okay, so that, much... That's-
1: that's- Ask yeah. one more question. Sorry.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, yeah.
1: I just. How big was, for you as a fan, as as an, journalist, how big was that moment for you? You know, you mentioned that you 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 were, you weren't actually there when it happened, but it it feels like one of. To me, it feels like one of the biggest moments. You know, oh, yeah. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you, it, it was one of those moments where you know exactly where you are. I think I've told you where I was. I was at a concert, just before a concert, JoJo. a JoJo concert. Yes, and. And I was watching it with another, actually, uh, Alex McPherson, who, who worked for the WTA, and we were in a pub watching it on, on our phones in the middle of a pub. You know, and people didn't really know what was happening. You know, she she said that she would had an announcement and she had a, I think she had a clock ticking down to the announcement, right?
0: Yeah. And people thought was, she was retiring, probably.
1: Yeah, yeah. People thought she was retiring. I read so many different theories and not one... I, I remember reading so many theories, but not one of them was about, you know, thinking she was going to fail and do and de- a, a drug test. And I don't know, it, it seems like one of the biggest moments in
0: tennis in the last 20 de- uh, since I've been following it. Definitely, Easy. absolutely. I completely agree with that. Yeah, no, it was, it was a seismic event having a Grand Slam champion. And she wasn't even really the alpha. I think it would still be a much bigger story if, and sort of be like, because with Sharapova, she was enough a champion that was a big big deal that she tested positive but not enough that it sort of like invalidated the past decade of tennis results you know like if yep. it had been one of the big three or Serena you know frankly like those are yep. the players who like if you ask if you wipe out their results then you really have big empty spaces in the record book it would really really harm the sport and, or something like that but with with, with Sharapova it was also turned into this big wave of Russians testing positive for meldonium uh and across lots of sports I think like hundreds of them tested positive in some form or another across the last because it was a very, very commonly taken substance by Soviet, you know, region athletes. Yeah. in the, And then, in, in, in that, you know, and, and Sharapova actually, I could be wrong with this, but I believe Sharapova served the toughest sentence of any of them because yeah. the way that she came out and said, yes, because they later came out that, WADA had not done the proper athlete excretion test, it's called. They didn't know how long it stayed in people's systems. So lots of other athletes argued successfully that they had stopped taking it in December, but it was still lingering in their bodies um, and showing up in samples for months afterwards. But Sharapova was very forthright and came out and said, I was taking this and tested positive and, you know, took it that morning, essentially, she said, uh, before her quarterfinal match in in Australia. Um, so that kind of sh- that coming forward, while admirable, probably hurt her in some ways. But the uh, adjudication of her case was because Varvara like, yeah. Lepchenko was another tennis player who tested positive for Meldonium in early 2016. I believe she tested positive at Brisbane. And she, you know, but she said she'd taken it earlier. And after a lot of sort of, sort of silent ban and a lot of d- caginess and evasiveness from her eventually admitted <laughs> it. And yeah, all Nuremberg stuff or whatever. But uh, anyway, but I mean, but that's to say, so like Sharapova, I think, I do think, you know, and people can side eye fairly her, you know, her talk about having, you know, diabetes symptoms or heart trouble, but then also starting a candy company. I think the diabetes candy burn is completely fair. Yeah, Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, but I do think that she also did own up to it in a way which... Other athletes did not, which she should get, you know, some credit for, and yeah, and, and the ITF came down very harshly on her and had that whole she is the sole author of her own misfortune <laughs> decision that they put very out, dramatic. Which, which is very dramatic. Eventually, she got, she got that knocked down to fifteen months, uh, which, and I did an interview with her in New York that day when that cast decision came out. Yeah, I mean, and, and she was she was very relieved and, and very determined, and yeah, and and it did sort of really even more draw the battle lines, and obviously a lot of other, a few, well, several other tennis players picked opposite sides, uh, loudly, Moldenovic, Bouchard, Silikova, and it really made her 2017 comeback very heightened and very fraught in a lot of ways, and very, just felt very high stakes and very dramatic in this way that was irresistible, but also just sort of exhausting. (laughs) I remember that I was in at Madrid 2017, but it was like the one time I can remember actually it was Sherpa Bouchard, it was the one time I remember turning off a match. It was like, I just can't, I can't look at this. I, 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 it's just, this is too much for me. I, I can't, I can't deal yeah. with this. Um, and so that was the one time I remember doing that actually. And I think it was also on BN, which was a terrible network.
1: And, and especially, especially with the, the players who beat her, I know it. It was all the players who were critical of her. It was,
0: yeah. it was such a weird, you know. And then in Rome, she w- lost a tough match, retired with some sort of injury to somebody, and then she.
1: Hmm? Who? Oh no no! It was it was to Lucic, right?
0: Yeah, Lucic, right. Who the name before been really harsh to her, comparing her to Lance Armstrong and stuff. And then, <laughs> yeah, and as then, uh, as one does, and then, and then that later that day, Bernard Guiacelli went on Facebook Live and and read off and <laughs> a list of fourteen names slowly and but surely, and a friend, obscure French players because French women, for the most part, are no good at tennis beyond you know their Fed Cup team essentially these days. <laughs> to dramatically reveal that Sherpova was not getting a wild card anyway it was just like she got put through the ringer in a lot of ways yeah. in that in that stretch and then also had injury at Rome we're kind of getting a little too granular on this probably but that injury in Rome for forced her at Wimbledon where she was planning on playing qualifying she said she wanted to avoid the wild card circus and just play qualifying and that would have been a whole big scene having Maria Sherpova at Podunk Roehampton uh, playing, we yeah. wouldn't qualify, and they built they built like a whole new stadium in anticipation yeah, yeah. of her. Um, they did all the, yeah. So anyway, so what time
1: that was, honestly. And I, yeah. I just I wanted to say one more thing. Just that just fascinates me about that whole episode is that when she over first game on the tour, you asked me about my first memory of her. It was as this player who was kind of described as basically an American with a Russian passport. You know, yeah. all, all of the all of the early questions for her were you know about. You know, are you, you know, how American are you? How Russian are you? And this, you know, this the Maldonium incident has kind of the thing that made her Russian in the eyes of the public. You know, I
0: told I told her this in my interview with her in twenty seven yeah. in twenty sixteen I guess US twenty twenty sixteen or New York, sorry, fall twenty whenever she got her cast decision. I said like, you know, Maria, this Maldonium is like the most Russian thing you've ever done, and, <laughs> and she didn't really seem to like appreciate that remark but i was like you know because before you were just like american florida girl and here you are taking some obscure you know soviet latvian drug lots of people who i've talked to lots of various immigrants from various different countries still use medicines or treatments that are more popular in their ancestral homelands you know i've I've heard from french people who take french medicine still and whatever else it's not not uncommon but um but yeah it was did not expect Maria and she was the only ten- Russian tennis player to get caught up in it for her to be the sort of one to do it. Yep. Anyway, I mentioned a couple times Serena. And you we did. mentioned and in the sort of in the sort of fan thing, the Serena fans were the most ardent against her and honestly gleeful at her demise, which I will say, you know, my sort of take on that is be careful what you wish for because Maria Sharapova was a very reliable person for Serena to face in the <laughs> okay. late rounds of Grand Slams. And now is in- yep. not there anymore. It's not going as well for Serena uh, against various other people. But having Maria be a late round pigeon was something that I'm sure Serena fans miss in a lot of ways. Anyway, how much do you think her that her legacy will be shaped by Serena? And basically, after starting off 2-1 and one against Serena... Uh, losing, what was the final count like? Seventeen straight, eighteen straight, something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah just like com- right. being being completely one one sided effect. Or how, that, I think that just kind of shapes her story. I think there's, there's yeah. no way around it.
1: I mean, absolutely, particularly from a, a U.S. perspective. You know, absolutely. It's it's the one thing. If if ever you you know, when when you mention Shao achievements and her slam titles, but but she's a record against Serena, and honestly, I, I kind of. You know, it frustrates me, actually, from the perspective of Serena and how people talk about her achievements and how it's their punchline rather than, you know, the fact that Sharpova has that record against Serena is reflective of how good Serena is, you know? And, yeah. you know, and Serena's, like, ability and what she does is taken for granted, I think, when, you know, I think there's there's a lot that goes into that head-to-head. You know, there's there are, there's matchup issues. Sharpova can't match Serena serve and Serena has no problems with, you know, take, taking on sharp over serve and moving her and moving faster than her and just many different things. Serena's a much better player and she brings it every time. And that's ref- more reflective of Serena being a great athlete. Than that. She, she's not deserving of five slams because of her record against Serena.
0: Yeah, completely. And I think, I think people really do dismiss her more than they should as just being like this, like, punching bag. Because if you if you see tennis through a Serena Williams lens, which many Americans do, many Serena fans do. Yeah. And Maria's the punchline. But yep. she's actually um, a much much better player than that and obviously did a lot and won a you know, a career slam. Obviously, you can't knock that and you can't fluke your way out of any level to doing that. Uh, but yeah, but the Serena thing does become preeminent. I think and part of it is because of because of how big a deal that 0-4 match was, I really do think that Serena was just so determined. To never, but to never give Sharapova anything less than her best in terms of what she faced across the net, and Serena just never. With actually, maybe the exception of that 2016 Australian Open, where which where where Maria tested positive later that day, that was the one match where Serena didn't play amazing against Sharapova. Yeah. But um, but every other time, pretty much, Serena at least when it mattered was awesome and just never and just never at all relented, which is not as we said before, like Serena you know especially when it comes to the kind of tournaments where marie because serena beat maria everywhere she beat her on you know on indoor on outdoor on clay on grass my favorite stat is that blue clay only existed for one week and serena managed (laughs) to beat maria on blue clay so check that off the box like you know she (laughs) but yeah but she just always was there and always meant so much to her and actually remember didn't drake just say something about this recently i don't know if you saw this that yeah. That, like, Serena was advising Drake when he was having his beef with Meek Mill yeah. about, about how to, like, really destroy somebody. <laughs> and yeah. sort of tapping into her own Sharpova experience. Like, this was, like, a mission for Serena to make sure that she never lost again. And it was a mission accomplished. And yeah. it wound up being, I think, a really big motivating motivating factor for Serena. And probably, you know, was one of the things that propelled Serena, and maybe some Serena fans won't like this, but I firmly believe, like wanting to destroy Maria firmly propelled Serena to another level in her career. Like Serena would not have as many grand slams if she didn't get to beat up on Maria Sharapova along the way.
1: I mean, yeah, she's, I mean, for a lot of the time, she was one of the top five players, number two, you know, number three. So absolutely. Yeah.
0: In in her, in this, basically in Sharapova's career, the sort of 15 year stretch dating back to Oh four, when she, when she first won, Sharapova won five grand slams, and which is in women's tennis is second only to Serena. Yeah. Nobody else won yeah, more yeah, than yeah. that in that stretch. I mean, yeah. H- Enin and, and Venus both put up a few slams before that and had overall higher titles. But once Sharapova got on the scene and really started being a factor, then yeah, then she was number two behind Serena. Distant, distant number two, but number two. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, and that again shows it's why she shouldn't be dismissed as just the... Also ran who couldn't hack it with Serena. I mean, she was the best of the rest uh, for yeah, a long if, time.
1: If, if you look at the results and not just kind of the slams as well, it's the the rate of winning. You know, until the last couple of years of her career, she had she'd won over eighty percent of her matches, and that's unheard of now. You know, that she's kind of the last player who was able to go through a season, you know, semi finals, you know, finals, semifinals, just that level of consistency and beating. Everyone aside from Serena. And,
0: no, this, yeah. this, this current WTA chaos land is in large part because of Sharapova's no longer being that dominant force. I mean, Cher- a collection of players, Sharapova, Serena, and Azarenka maybe Azarenka, a little bit yeah. less. Yeah, or the three, and, and maybe and obviously Venus had aged out of that a while ago, but Venus in her day was that good. And yeah. Kleister's in her day was that and all the other players, but nobody has replicated in modern tennis really uh, that we've seen sustained yet. Like that kind of week in week out greatness and reliability, yep. that Sharapova was maybe the youngest of that group to really have for a long length of time. Yeah, so she was kind of an interesting like cross era player. She showed up early enough that she played against you know, or she was at least overlapped. I know they were played like against like Capriati, and you uh, know for when Capriati bowed out and in, in Davenport she played against her winning her first Grand Slam, and but then she goes all the way through playing against you know Donna Vekic is her last match she plays um and she played Ash Barty uh in Cincinnati last year so she you know she really does span a pretty a pretty big range and she you know and as much as she was disintegrating by the end she was not awful at the end I mean she took in her two tournaments this year her first one first round Brisbane she took Jennifer Brady to a third set tie break in the first round when Brady's having a great year Brady beat number one Ash Barty the next round and then uh, and then Sharapova lost to Vekic, like three and four, four and three, or something like that, which is, yeah. you know, Vekic is a top 20 player. So yeah. it wasn't like she was embarrassing herself, per se, in most of these matches. But uh, it was beneath her. But it was, but it was, right. It was the sort of standard. And this is something, again, which makes her different, like compare it to the retirement of Andy Roddick, let's say, who re- who retired at 30, but also retired when at sort of the first sign or closer to the first sign that he wasn't that it wasn't going to happen for him. You know, when he, he's, Andy Roddick won two titles here. he retired, like, small titles, but like, Atlanta and Eastbourne or something. And then wanted to kind of go out while still feeling, like, a little bit more relevant. Like, Sharapova hung on until, like we said earlier, near the beginning of the show, that she was not competitively relevant, really, anymore on tour, um, in terms of being, like, a title contender at Grand Slams. But, you know, but she didn't necessarily, she was willing to get kind of down and dirtier in this sort of, Leighton Hewitt-ish way, yeah. which, is, which is not really what you'd expect for someone who's so Madison Avenue and so Glamour Girl and whatever, that they'd be, she'd be like really willing to get in the mud and like fight near the end.
1: As as you said, it just, it goes back to kind of how she is as a person and as a player. And, you know, she'd done that once already, you know, she'd gone through having a bad shoulder injury. And, you know, the, we, we forget how kind of tough those first those first months and years were—I'll never forget her losing to Greta Arn in in Oakland or something—and mm. you know she it was tough. It, it wasn't automatic. It took you know she came back in 2009, and it wasn't until 2011 that she started to really get back to beating top players and took out a Wozniaki here or there. And I'm sure you know for a while, deep down in her mind, she felt that if she kept on working, you know, perhaps this will happen again. And that's why she kept on going. And as you said, it, it relates back to Murray. And, you know, that's it's why she's a champion and it's why it, it took so long. I mean, it took a lot of defeats and a lot of tough losses for her to finally decide to, uh, that this wasn't working.
0: Yeah, no. And her body is like is really broken now, to use the Murray yeah. comparison, too. I mean, like she really does not have full use of that arm at all and even certain things if you watch how she does certain things on the court things you know pointed out to me like certain ways she can't move her arm basically while she's playing or while she's picking up her bags or whatever like she just like she's a, a injured broken person from this um, and that should not be overlooked and she really did push it i think as far as she possibly could and i'm glad that she yep. finally finally saw saw the like like i said my my, my main relief my main reaction to this retirement really is kind of relief um which yep. again is why i'm not a world-class athlete because i look at andy murray and i was like my god stop like please stop putting yourself through this like go go walk and have a healthy life but watching his documentary when he would you know basically be on make a phone call and have like three minutes to kill so he'd go hop on a stair climber it's like this is not that's not my life at all (laughs) yeah so what, what was it like just to get a little more personal what was it like for you i'll share some stories too but first for you what was it like and also courtney will be on the show later when she's, she's in Doha, so it's tough to arrange now with Wi-Fi is not great. So we'll do a sort of a more full Cherpova sure recollections, reflections story. But I'm curious for you, Tamani, as someone who had, you know, a bit younger than me, who had watched her for a bigger portion of your fan life, like what was it like for you once you were finally in the same room as Maria and covering her? What was she like for you to, to, to be around once you got into yeah. this professionally?
1: Yeah, I think I've, I've seen a lot of, you know, in, in, since, uh, since she announced her retirement, some of the journalists, you know, talk about how, you know, the kind of the moments that we'd see in the press room that, you know, she could be funny. She could, you know, she was always professional. She, um, you know, she was. I mean, aside from parts of the Maldonium thing, she, she was one of the players that I always thought stood up. You know, when she lost, she wasn't afraid to kind of front up and yeah. to talk, speak frankly, and she didn't duck away from questions about losing you know she owned you know, her she, losses
0: for sure exactly
1: yeah, yeah she she could be sarcastic and if, if she didn't like where you're going with the question you you knew that immediately but i don't know there was a there was she was kind of even if she wasn't open she was honest if you, if you get what i mean and as as you mentioned as a fan i'll, I'll be honest you know growing up i wasn't crazy about her game I, I didn't feel like i as a person because from a from as a fan you, you don't always know how they are and I don't know she always seemed like someone who was quite distant and I mean to an extent she still always was but I I did kind of gain more respect seeing her kind of work at press film seeing moments where you got the sharp over the snarky sharp over the sharp over who Mm -hmm. as I'm sure Courtney will will mention who would just insult Courtney's phone cover in in Madrid or things like that (laughs) Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it. She she was very professional, and it was quite easy to cover her com- compared to other players. Of course, I'm curious what what. Well, Well, I mean,
0: yeah, I mean, I'm sure Corey and I probably will get into more like Maria story time stuff. But I mean, she was as much as she did have a reputation for being super icy in the locker room, which we haven't really mentioned yet. And being like not there to make friends, which was fair. That's I think that was not really that much exaggerated. I think a lot of players really did feel like she was uniquely distant, especially in that later era when especially when Serena started being more open and friendly in the locker room. Um yeah. Sherpova stood was, out even more as being, yeah, very clear, as, being yeah. as being icy. That was not really the experience impressed though. I mean, like she was somebody who was incredibly professional and, you know, collegial, and you'd ask her a question and you'd get a real answer to it very reliably. And yeah. that meant a lot, you know. And she was also somebody who didn't seem to be, you know, who seemed to be a relatively reliable narrator. Like she would, you know, not just give you some sort of like hokey spin or just like what you wanted to hear. A lot of the time she would, you know, yeah. be fair. Look, look, you know, look a question in dead, dead in the eye and, and yeah. pretty much answer. It. Yeah. Which which as a someone who's just trying to be, a, you know, have her be essentially a colleague or a coworker in this ecosystem and having her her being accommodating, helping me do my job is something that you know I appreciated hugely. And yes. And also there were those moments where she was like delightfully snarky or bitchy or whatever you want to call it. And would take those moments, which are also, I see it's honesty too, you know, when she would, when someone would come for her and she would, you know, clap back very well most of the time, which <laughs> happened a lot, right? From, I remember still being in the press conference at Wimbledon 2013, where out of seemingly nowhere, <laughs> she starts throwing under the bus, like Serena, you know, Serena's boyfriend who's married and has kids, which was Patrick Mortaglia, she was referring to then, just like, the sort of jaws dropping in the room that she like <laughs> that she went there with that and just like sort of escalated that and then you know I was the one when she had the isn't she back in Poland already comment the underrated one that was about Ravonska, after Rovanska had claimed about gr- complained about grunting or something and then when Wozniacki said it was unfair that she got put that Wozniacki got put in some small side court while Sharapova after her ban was on the stadium Um <laughs> and, 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 and Sharapova said this one like very pretty calmly so it didn't even like i was one of the few people who reacted to it in the room when she said all i know is i'm in the third round and yeah i'm not sure where she is or something because she, she, she was naki had already lost and yeah those sort of moments like those were there's youtube compilations of maria doing these things yeah. you extremely injured and whatever else like you know yeah. there's uh yeah like that kind of stuff was kind of popcorn catnip in the sport a lot of times and but it also just came from a place of keeping it real you know yeah. like that's what i appreciate about her is that for as much as she was super polished much as she was the sort of madison avenue poster girl with the fancy endorsements like she also was like a brawler yeah a street fighter yeah absolutely a street fighter and that and that you know and that combination i think you could appreciate the duality of that and be sort yeah. of you know intimidated or put off by the sort of glamour side of her or distanced by that by that sort of cold super polished veneer but also then yeah but then appreciate the sort of the fighter within and I think she her balancing that uh was was pretty pretty impressive yeah
1: and I'll say that uh, as her career went on I think you know you, you got the super polished veneer when she was selling one of her products or whatever but it, certainly not, in, I mean, always in matches, that was her being a brawler in the press room. I, I wouldn't say, I'd say that it was more honesty. And I don't know, I think you've you got a lot, many glimpses of kind of what she's about, what she's like and what she stands for.
0: It was sort of interesting, denouement to her career, the Piotti period, in which yeah. she, very late in her career, splits with her longtime coach, 2nd Grunfeld. You know, with her very insular team and goes to train at an academy in Italy, where she's just sort of basically one of, and obviously she's still, you know, herself and still a big star and probably an outsized person there, but she kind of goes in as part of more of a team atmosphere, part of more of a traditional ecosystem and, and team. And, you know, she's training alongside Yannick Sinner, who's a 17-year-old or now 18-year-old prodigy uh, from Italy. And they're sort of sharing courts together and occasionally hitting together, I think, and dancing in, and dancing videos in sometimes. Like, weird Christmas videos. Yeah. And like, and she mentioned in the, in the, uh, in the Chris Clary interview that she like sent a video to the center of her skiing to like for him to look at, cause he was a, a competitive ski racer. And he was like, yeah, maybe stick to tennis because she'd never gone skiing <laughs> before in her, in her life. Uh, cause that's one of the things people, tennis players very quickly do after they retire, is they go yeah. skiing because it's like, it's like high risk activity that's contractually forbidden for most of them. While they're playing, the Sharapova sort of went to this very grassroots kind of like tennis camp. No, that's not the right word. You know what I mean? Like tennis, like training camp, essentially. But it's kind of an interesting sort of, and it's the way that you know I I have this reaction with Serena and stuff too. Like because they're such big stars, you can forget they're like tennis lifers. Like they are. Like they are. Like you know, when Serena like make it kind of stands out to Serena with Serena when like she's making. She makes, like, really old, hokey tennis jokes. Like, she said yeah. at some point last year, like, oh, you know, usually I only come to the net to shake hands, which is, like, yeah, the York oldest York corny tennis joke in the world. And, like, the Serena is still, like, fluent in that language and that very sort of, like, you know, salty, leathery old tennis coach at some court in Florida. Yeah. Like, that she yeah. speaks that and she grew up in that. Like, you can kind of lose sight of that in their big, symbolic stuff. And Sharapova's yeah. you know, last chapter, I think, was very much her, you know, getting in touch with that that side of sport, border and sort of humbling herself a bit to be part of that level in a way that i thought was interesting and it was also and humanizing
1: yeah it was also a a bit of a full circle moment since i know you've done a work on kind of the voluntary academy for her to kind of start yeah. at voluntary and then and you know trying to find her best at a different academy a different camp in the middle of nowhere yeah i, I don't know i think it you know it, it kind of reflects that she kind of exhausted all her options and this is where we are now. You know, th- there's nothing for, her, for from her perspective. I don't think there's anything left to do.
0: No. Yeah. No, and she came out on a very specific time and was kind of like the right player at the right time in a lot of ways. And I, 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 the reason I say that is because I've been thinking it's been very interesting in the last year watching how much attention Coco Golf has gotten. Maybe we've had this conversation. How much attention Coco Golf has gotten, how much attention Anissa Mova has largely not gotten. Or at least how Amantha Nisimova, who's had better results in Koko has and is, only a, is also an American teenager, has not really captured the public imagination in quite the same way so far. Yeah, I think Sharapova coming on the heels of all that Kornikova stuff we were talking about was an interesting sort of bridge. And maybe in some ways kind of maybe the last of a certain kind of player, you know, carrying on a tradition of, of being that kind of that particular kind of like regal... Uh, distant figure in the sport. I'm not sure. I don't think there's really any equivalent to her in younger generations. Maybe Jeannie, people would mention, but Jeannie is, is not anywhere near her relevance. I I I don't see anyone really being the next Sharapova meaningfully for for a long time in that same yeah. the same caliber that she was. Yeah, I mean, I
1: I think she she kind of comp- completed that role in a way, you know, because because of Kournikova with Kournikova she had you know she wasn't able to attain the success whereas Sh- 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 sharp was billed as this marketable white blonde woman and i don't know i, I think n- now there's a yeah you know, it would take a lot for someone to just follow you know i, I don't think some the focus is just going to jump to someone who is as close to sharpover as possible because she's already there if you get what i mean
0: yeah totally absolutely and uh, her impact on the sport is pretty big, and as is yours, Tumani. Thank you for being here on short notice on CR to do an emergency chirpova retirement episode. Any any further thoughts on her before I let you go and wrap this up? Curious of of
1: all those shady moments, what what's, what stands <laughs> out on the most? Let's, let's
0: end it on that. Uh, It's the more one. I mean, for me, just because like she went like. It had been this, like, because those of you who don't know the context, like, there was an article that came out in Rolling Stone, uh, feature on Serena in Rolling Stone, which was messy in a lot of different ways, The article. But one of the things that was, that sh- that the writer wrote about was having her, was being in the car with Serena while she had a phone conversation that she assumed was about Sharapova, basically. And so that was sort of, like, the sort of, like, blind item-ish kind of thing. But anyhow, uh, <laughs> then, like, for... Serena to for Sharapova to like take it so far, in her clapback and to go like right for like, yeah, Serena's personal life in that way was um I it think was it got, it was personal life personal life those insults Girl. but it was just sort of like it was like wow like that was the sort of like the the sort of the shiving moment of uh of WTA this decade yep. I feel like that was wow it's it's, it's funny have... like yeah
1: I mean uh, on on that point it's, it's funny that. The way the Serena Sharpe over relations are, are kind of discussed, they kind of forget that that was the moment where everything went to treads. I'm sure they, you know, for a long time they there was a mutual dislike, but or whatever. But they kind of they got on with it, you know. Oh, that, it 2012 it Istanbul a, draw ceremony. Yeah, exactly. Like in the
0: 2012, giggling with each other. Yeah, exactly. Even
1: <laughs> even at, at the at the Olympics, actually, when they um. When Serena killed, you know, it was love and one in the final. I remember when they were leaving, they were just like chatting, and it was very strange. And you know, it was, you know,
0: there had been there had been a thaw, yeah.
1: Yeah, they, they they were never friends, or but and but they kind of just gone on with it. And it was just only in recent years that it, it has become this huge thing, you know, you know that when they play Serena versus Djokovic, on the other hand, they're not
0: rivals, you know. And I don't know, it's <laughs> it's exhausting. <laughs> I still um, remember. What, this is not a quote from either of them, but I still remember being at the first match they played against each other after the Wimbledon-Mortaglu blow-up, which was 2014 Brisbane. And this guy in like, the crowd, as they were warming up, up shouted, winner keeps Grigor. <laughs> and it was just like the funniest thing I've ever heard of the test.
1: I mean, yeah, we, we, we won't talk about the fact that a lot of this was to do with a man. But anyway, my, my favourite <laughs> moment of hers was probably... Run, run. I don't oh, know. Run, run, yeah. the most <laughs> <laughs> absurd. <laughs> her playing against um, Redvanska, a long point. Her, her in, in Istanbul. Like 10, 10, yeah, in Istanbul, the WD finals, hitting about 10 winners that Redvanska got back. And when she finally got got the win on the 11th, she just screamed, run, run, across the court. It's the most absurd. <laughs> One of the more absurd <laughs> things I've seen on a tennis court, yeah. I mean... Uh, <laughs> well, that
0: was Maria. I mean, Maria was like... That kind of, you know, that was what she was so... She was a really, really great antagonist. Yeah. For lack of a better word on the sport. Like, she was somebody... And she's why, like, I, I, you know, I do believe that she and Serena were rivals in the sense that this was the person who Serena most wanted to be and most would hate to lose to. And to me, that's a lot of what a rival is. It's not... Rival does not mean comparable, equal all the time. Because Serena has none of those. But... Being someone who was, like, the most intense, the most appointment matchup, like, as much as those matches were often, a lot of them were close to people give them credit for, first of all. Like, there was a lot of, like, tight sets in their rivalry, even if Serena won every match for a long time. But, you know, seeing um, the intensity they brought out in each other. And the same thing with Sharapova and, like, Azarenka, or Sharapova and Wozniacki. Like, you know, Sharapova... And well, Annan and Kleister's were a little bit, they weren't as heated, those rivalries, but even like Sharapova and Yankovic or Ivanovich, like those were matches or Modenovic or Bouchard or whatever, those were matches that were just like appointment TV. And Sharapova was such a, a interesting person to have across the net and such an interesting antagonist and opponent and character and all those things to have in the cast. And tennis would be less interesting without her. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So well, there we go. That's a better conclusion. Thank you, Tamani, for being here on the show. People can follow you at Tomb Carry on Twitter and any other places, any other, po- and on The Guardian. I'm sure you have a yeah. page there. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah. You're really snappy. You're, you're with your turtleneck headshot. That's really, that's good.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I'll, I'll be on Twitter. I'm always on Twitter. So thanks for having me. It's, I'm happy to be back. And,
0: yeah. Thanks very Cheers. much, Tamani. Yeah, cheers. So thank you very much to Tumani for being on the show and thank you guys for listening to NCR as always. If you want to follow along when you're not listening, you can do so by following on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. Send us questions and comments and whatever else to our email. No challenges remaining at gmail.com. We also want to thank our backers on Patreon to help keep the show going and give shout outs to the ones who've signed on since we last posted. An episode They are Arvin Busnermath, Elon Weinstock, Stephanie Chow, and Jod, as well as to our Slam Champ backers who get shout outs on every show Jonathan Weinbaum, Liz Kinnell, Betty, and Chuang Nguyen. Thank you very much for all your support there, and we look forward to seeing you on another show. Courtney, as I said during that show. We'll be back on NCR soon. We'll discuss our further stories and reactions and recollections and anecdotes and whatnot about Maria Sharapova's time in tennis and our overlap with her. And later this week, we have an interview, which was going to go up today originally, with Louisa Thomas of The New Yorker talking about tennis and writing and all sorts of good stuff. Louisa is great. So that'll be out in a few days. And in the meantime, hope you're well. Bye, guys.